In the late 1970s, the J.H. Filbert Company in Baltimore, Maryland, was in the process of trying to uh, uh, create a new product. They were in the food production business, and they were trying to create a new product that would be an alternative to butter. They wanted something that was more cost-effective. If it had better health benefits than butter does as well, that's all the better. And eventually they thought that they were nailing down, and they, they thought they, they were on to the product that, that they were going to go with. So they started to give it to employees to be able to take home and be able to use uh, uh, in their own homes as, as a means of market research, as a means of testing it out with others. And it was the husband of one administrative assistant who, after taking a bite of, I don't know if it was toast or something that had this new product on it, he joyfully exclaimed, I can't believe it's not butter. And a product was born. You can still find, I can't believe it's not butter, in your dairy aisle at at the grocery store. But there's a way that I can't believe it's not butter actually serves us in a unique manner. And that is, I can't believe it's not butter can serve as a reminder to you, even as you are buying groceries, to be on guard against counterfeit forms of Christianity. To be on guard against believing things about Jesus that all look about right, yet they're actually knockoffs. Knockoff butter works fine. A knockoff Savior, a knockoff Lord that looks the part but actually is not Him can have devastating consequences. What we are going to see in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 611, is that if we will forsake our fabricated versions of Jesus, then we will find the real Jesus to be everything we need. If we will forsake our fabricated versions of Jesus, then we will find the real Jesus to be everything we need. Follow along. As I read Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through chapter 6, verse 11. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? 
how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the, pre- of, of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. May God bless the preaching of his word and minister to it, minister it to our hearts. We are going to see this morning the real Jesus and our responsibility to make sure that we don't confuse the real Jesus with fabrications that we might muster in our own minds or might see around us. So the first way that we see the real Jesus is we see that the real Jesus does not constrain hearts, but he captivates hearts. The real Jesus does not constrain hearts, but captivates them. As we enter the scene in chapter 5, verse 33, we enter at the same place where the previous section left off, where you remember there was a tax collector named Levi, and what was referred to as the tax collectors and sinners, who they were all dining in Levi's home, and Jesus was there having a meal with them. But off to the side, there's some Pharisees and there's some scribes who are also watching this unfold, and they're starting to ask questions about Jesus. And so they ask in verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John, that's referencing John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But here yours are eating and they're drinking. Why is this so different? Well, we have to understand here a little about the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and scribes were religious leaders in Israel. They placed a supreme importance upon fidelity to the Old Testament law. But particularly, here's what the problem was that they had found themselves in. They had taken the Old Testament law as they understood it, and they had prescribed all sorts of applications of it, all sorts of further advancements of it that that, that they believed needed to be applied in the life of all who would faithfully follow God. And so one such example is in regards to fasting. In fasting, in Old Testament law, the only day that was given to the people of Israel as a mandatory day of fasting was was the Day of Atonement. And yet the Pharisees and scribes had taken a number of, um, of, uh, of, of, of rituals and of days that they deemed to be important and, and, and created all sorts of mandates for how the people of Israel should go about their, uh, their service to God to the point that they were mandating fast multiple times a week. And so you go from one day a year to multiple times a week, and this is the problem now that as Jesus enters into the picture, the Pharisees and scribes are saying, why aren't your followers fasting like the rest of us are? And Jesus responds with three parables or three illustrations, a wedding, a garment, and wineskins. 
the first illustration he gives of a wedding is he says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? After all, he says to them that, that the people of Israel, they would fast for two reasons throughout Scripture. They would fast for two reasons, one of which is if there was some kind of national grief or mourning or sorrow or, or, or great defeat that had come upon them, or, or is there some kind of great lamenting that the people had to do. So they would, they would, they would be downtrodden, and they would call for a, 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 a communal fast in repentance for sin or in need of God's mercy in the midst of some great calamity. Another reason that they would fast would be for pursuit of holiness, pursuit of a desire to, to see God, a desire to serve God. And so, so it was this de- desire to press into and to know God, which sounds noble on the surface, and it is noble. But the danger is that Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, you guys are so consumed with your own uh, righteousness that you muster through your fasting that I... Son of God am here, the bridegroom who has come to Israel, and I am here and you don't see me. He's saying, this is a wedding where the bridegroom has come for Israel and you're treating it like a funeral. And the reason that they were treating it like a funeral was because they were so blinded by the conditions that they had placed on their service to God that they could not see the Savior who had come. Imagine a crowd of people moping around a wedding. No reason for celebrating. And Jesus says to them, hold on. Think of the reasons that you fast, dear Israel. You fast because you want to know God. Well, I'm here and you don't know me. You fast because of some great sorrow that has come your way. Because of some great affliction that weighs down upon you. Well, I am here and I am the one who brings healing to these. And yet you fail to see. The warning for us is to beware of, 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 of thinking of our service to God. Or beware of thinking our communion with God being something that constrains our hearts to the point that we are no longer captivated by Jesus who has come. He additionally used two other illustrations. He used a piece of fabric that cannot hold both an old and new garment together can't function in harmony together. And he also references wineskins. These were hides or materials that were used to hold wine. And they would, what would happen is old wineskins, if they got a hole in them and you tried to patch them up with a new piece of wineskin, the new and the old would not, would, would, would not mesh well together and would cause the whole wineskin to burst. And so in, in reality, what Jesus is illustrating for his audience is he's saying you have your Old Testament law you have your Old Testament informed practices that you think are serving for your development in the faith, and yet you have hijacked them and led them astray to the point that now you can't see that they all point to me, and now the new has come. I who have come to fulfill the Old Testament, and it's going to burst on your law because your hearts are constrained to the law to the point you can't be captivated by me. You know what's fascinating about this is in our day, I don't think many of us struggle where, perhaps we do, but, but where we overemphasize the laws of the Pharisees and scribes in our own life. In our day, we struggle sometimes where perhaps we overemphasize secondary or tertiary issues. 
where you have entire churches or you have entire groups of Christians who will segregate from others based on opinions on all sorts of things, whether it's politics, whether it's… I saw a big fight uh, online this week amongst professing Christians over different philosophies on schooling children. There was the homeschool crowd, there was the private school crowd, there was the public school crowd, and Christians throwing stones at one another because of their opinions on this. It's an important issue, but it's not something worth breaking fellowship over. And that's how secondary or tertiary issues rise up to break fellowship amongst believers. You see, these secondary or tertiary issues become means by which we think our faith is, is reliant, whether in, as opposed to our faith informing the, how we interpret these issues. Do you see the difference there? Something that's reliant as opposed to informed by? But in light of that, we some, I don't think we, we deal with the means by which we are striving to be so legalistic or so, so rules-oriented that we will miss seeing Jesus in our day. The danger that we might face more precisely is prescribing to a form of Christianity that does not challenge our lives towards seeing our need for Jesus and being transformed by the gospel. So in this sense, we can actually become constrained by the need to puff up our own view of ourself with an unwillingness to admit our, our, our sinfulness, with an unwillingness to acknowledge that we need Jesus. In our day and age, where, where one of the great uh, 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 offenses that we can do in, 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 in just the spirit of our age is, is to admit that I need something beyond me, that I don't have all the answers in myself, that, that, that there's healing that I need that I can't find through greater self-esteem or through, through, through uh, a, a greater work on my own self. I actually need Jesus to work on me. And so I think that's where the more precise danger for us is in regards to constraining our hearts, where we believe that the solution to all of our problems is in ourselves. If we'll just try harder, if we'll just work harder, if we'll just think more positively. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Doomsday Preppers. I enjoyed watching it probably 10 years ago. It was about people who were prepping for doomsday, prepping for an apocalypse. And so they would store up great rations of food, and they would store up uh, a, a lot of times a, a lot of weaponry and ammunition, like, like thinking that the world was going to fall apart, and they were going to be on their own to fend, to fend for themselves. And what you'd find with a lot of people on Doomsday Preppers is they would build these or, or, or have constructed these massive like bunkers, these underground bunkers that they and their loved ones could retreat to and lock themselves in and have all the rations and things they need literally for years. But one of the problems with some of these bunkers was that they, were, they, they would lock up and you would not be able to get out or you would not be able to allow other people in for a very long time. And so that you, you would see issues with that with people with, well, well, how do you know when to lock it up or, or are you locking family or loved ones out by accident or how do you manage the, the, the security system that controls all of this? And what it began to, what, what, what some people started to realize it's the same thing that we start to see Jesus highlighting here with the law and, and, and a false application of it, a false reliance on it, is that that which we can build up for our own protection can actually become our own prison. And so here we have the Pharisees, they are so, so law-oriented that they, they're, they're literally fasting multiple times a week and trying and thinking, I am serving God. And they're thinking it's for their protection but it has become their prison because they in falsely they, 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 decline, they close their eyes to being able to see Jesus. 
And if we so concern ourselves with building our own righteousness, or we so concern ourselves with thinking that the answers to all of our greatest problems are found within me, we're really no different than the Pharisees who thought the answers to all their problems were found in in the resolve of their fasting. Only when our eyes are able to look outward does our self-righteousness be moved to the side and it no longer is a prison, but it is removed and we're able to see our Lord. And so the first question here as we consider this passage and it is the question of, are we constrained in our hearts towards Jesus because we believe the answers to our greatest needs are outside of him? Or are we captivated by him because the answers to our greatest needs are found in him? Okay, secondly, secondly, the real Jesus does not falsely apply the law, but fulfills it. The real Jesus does not falsely apply the law, but fulfills it. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We move forward here. I don't know how long it is after they had left Levi's home, but we reach a Sabbath. The Sabbath was the last day of the week. It was Saturday when after a week's worth of work, the people of Israel were told to reserve the, week, the, the, the day for worship, for rest, for trust in the Lord. And there's certainly a wise principle there for us in recognizing in our rest that we are reliant upon the Lord. We as human beings have been conditioned to need rest. It's a really humbling fact to think about if the average person over the course of their life, sometimes you get a little less sleep than this, sometimes you get a little more, but if the average person sleeps over the course of their life roughly eight hours a day, eight hours a night, however you would divide it up, you are spending a third of your life sleeping. That is a humbling thought, is it not? Does it not reveal the need that we have for something outside of us to be in control, for someone outside of us to be in control? In fact, every night that you go to bed, every night that I go to bed, in one sense, we lay our head on the pillow hoping that, trusting that, I'm going to wake up six hours from now, seven hours from now, eight hours from now. Those of you that sleep nine or ten hours from now, the rest of us despise you. But however long you sleep, you are going to bed at night and you are hoping, trusting that you are going to wake up in the morning and the world is still going to be spinning on its axis and that, that there is a God who has held things together while you were asleep. And that is one of the purposes for a Sabbath. The Sabbath is good. It reminds us to rest in the Lord whom our trust is rooted in. But now the issue here is these Pharisees and scribes had made all sorts of additional prescriptions for the Sabbath. So one such prescription that they had made was they limited how far someone could travel. And so I'm not making this up. So literally, they did not have Fitbits or Apple Watches or anything back in their day, but they would mark, they would count, they would chart how many steps they would take. So I don't remember exact numbers, but say somebody could take 999 steps, but if they got to 1,000, then that meant they were working that day, and therefore they were not honoring the Sabbath. Imagine that. You go out to the shed to get food, and you're coming back into the kitchen, and halfway through the backyard, you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm at 999 steps. So either I'm standing here in the backyard like this and resting on the Sabbath, or I'm disobedient to God. That's some of the conditions that were ongoing. And um, as Jesus addresses these guys, we, ha- we see a picture come about 
where the Pharisees and scribes confront him over his apparent disobedience to the Sabbath. On a, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, on a Sabbath while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. Let's pause here. Jesus is responding to this question by citing a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21. In this story, David and some men who were with him were very hungry, and they came to the temple and ate bread that had previously been consecrated or set apart to the Lord. But this was not a violation because of, of the law of God, because they needed it in order to survive. And here's what's fascinating that we see here. What, what is being illustrated is that the law of God does not exist for, um, to, 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 to be a burden to the people of God, but the law of God exists in order to be a blessing to the people of God. And so as David, what we realize is that the law of God as a gift to the people of God correctly does, it will either be misunderstood or correctly understood. If it's misunderstood, then it serves as, 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 as a form of hindrance to them. But when it's correctly understood, it serves as a means of pointing out revealing this servant of God who is the king and the redeemer of his people. It is no accident that David was the one who went into the temple and had to eat this bread. So Jesus applies this conversation with the Pharisees. He brings this story back to the Sabbath, and he points to David and then points to himself and then says, you can see the law one of two ways. It will either blind you from being able to see the Lord's servant who has come, or it will open your eyes to be able to see the Lord's servant in all of his splendor. One of the two. Said in a manner by which we're understanding things today, the law will either help you to see the right Jesus or help you to see Jesus wrongly. And the issue here was that his audience was so immersed in what they understood the law to be that they were blinded to the one that the law anticipated. Brothers and sisters, as we study our Old Testaments, the Old Testament is not a burden that hinders our being able to see Jesus. The Old Testament actually serves as spotlights that enable us to see Jesus more vividly when we're, when we're studying and seeing it rightly. So, we get into this and we see how Jesus doesn't falsely apply the law, but how he fulfills the law. And I want you to see something very interesting as he brings this story back to the Sabbath. Because this story with David, there's no mention of the Sabbath in the story from 1 Samuel 21. So Jesus quotes this story, and then he brings it all in in verse 5 of chapter 6. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus is showing his audience. He's saying to them, I don't serve to highlight the wonder of the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves to highlight the wonder of me. Because when you rest, when you recharge, when you worship, when you step back from the endeavors of the week, you are admitting in your actions and reminding in your heart that your provision must come from beyond you and it comes from me. 
And so what Jesus is revealing to us and how we understand this as followers of Jesus is, you might say, do, do we still do the Sabbath? Do we observe that? Do, it, it's on Saturday. I, I had a pretty busy Saturday. Am I breaking the Sabbath? No, here's how we understand it as followers of Christ. Now, there are different interpretations of how the church and Christians should understand the Sabbath uh, theologically in this day, but here's, here's how I think we see it. What we see is that Jesus has completed the full work of God accomplishing our redemption. Remember on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. His work for us was accomplished. And so when we gather, and then he was resurrected on a Sunday, on the first day of the week, not the last day of the week, but the first day of the week, what we now refer to as the Lord's Day. And so when we gather week by week by week to worship, in one sense, we are observing this Sabbath reminder of God who has created and who has sustained and and who provides for all of our needs by worshiping the one who has provided for our great and ultimate need in his cross, Jesus Christ, as he died for our sins. And so we are observing this by reminding ourselves that all of our all of our power, all, all that we need to make it through each day, each week, yes, it comes from the Lord, but the greatest place that we realize this, the foundational place we realize this, is in seeing what Jesus has done for us in his death in our place. So, lock in with me on this. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in verse 5. Remember, that's a term to describe the King of Heaven who has all rule and authority over his creation. He'll establish His eternal kingdom. This is echoing back to Daniel chapter 7. And He's saying, this Son of Man is the Lord of the the Sabbath. But here's what we have to understand as well. When we talk about keeping the Sabbath, are you ready for your minds to get blown? When we talk about keeping the Sabbath, I don't know about you, but I started thinking, I'm thinking back to the Old Testament, to the law, to the Ten Commandments. But that's not where the Sabbath is first instituted, is it? It's instituted where? All the way back in creation, where God created for six days and then rested on the seventh. So Jesus is saying, and when He's saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, He is saying, I am the ruler over all things who is working powerfully in creation. I am the one who first instituted the Sabbath. I am the one who will usher in my perfect kingdom that stretches to the four corners of the earth. And therefore, I am the one who is Lord over the Sabbath. And then he looks at the Pharisees and scribes and says, and you're going to admonish me about plucking some grain on the Sabbath? That's Stephen conjecture. It's not here. But he's saying in verse 5, you accuse me of violating this. I'm the one that created it. And I'm the one that gave it to you as a good gift. Now in our day, kind of getting back to uh, previously where we have to understand, uh, you know, we, we don't have problems with us fasting too much. We don't have, I, I've never had any church members, any Christians come to me and say, Stephen, I, I'm, I'm observing the Sabbath wrongly or rightly. Or why, aren't, why isn't the church observing the Sabbath in this way? Nobody has ever brought a concern to me about how we do or do not do the Sabbath. And so the danger for us, once again, is to look at this and say, well, what's that got for me, to do? What's that got for me today? 
Or what's that mean for me? I'm stumbling over my words, but you know what I'm getting at. Here's the danger. When we remember the principle of the Sabbath, we might not struggle with how or what we believe theologically about the Sabbath, but you can bet your bottom dollar that we struggle with recognizing our need for rest. How many of us default to a busy calendar? How many of us default to filling up our days? How many of us default towards uh, 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 wanting, to be, wanting to always have something to do as opposed to pause and rest and wait on the Lord? I know I do. When we become consumed with our busyness to the point that we fail to rest in the Lord, we are starting to tell and starting to reveal that in our hearts, Jesus is not the Lord of the Sabbath because we don't want to rest in Him. The Sabbath rightly understood, Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath, rightly understood, corrects our hearts and our sense of purpose and planning for our lives. It corrects how we orient our schedules, what we prioritize, what we minimize. Recognizing that Jesus is not just the Lord over our words, but He is the Lord over our calendars. He is the Lord over our plans. Therefore, we must worship Him in accordance with this. We must trust Him in accordance with how we steward our days, our hours, our moments. We will either rest in the provision of the Lord and how He orders our days and how He calls us to worship Him in gathering with His people on the Lord's day, or we will be the ones chastising Him for plucking grain. So the real Jesus does not falsely apply the law, but fulfills it. The real Jesus does not constrain hearts, but captivates them. And thirdly, finally, the real Jesus reveals hypocrisy and is the cure for it. I don't know if you have ever had somebody in your life, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a variety of people who you kind of just aren't really connecting with. You're not really seeing eye to eye with. And so you, you maybe make remarks to one another from time to time and you think, oh, what did he or she mean by that? Or, you know, you kind of have like the passive-aggressive. I remember back one time I was uh, 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 doing summer missions uh, at a church in Hawaii. Yes, I know I was very suffering greatly uh, for the Lord um, at spending a summer in Hawaii. But there were six of us guys that were living in a house together. Uh, and one evening, we were about six weeks in. It was like an eight-week program we're about six weeks in, and there was one guy who he and I, we had just kind of stopped seeing eye to eye a few weeks prior. And so we're down on the beach, beautiful, like sun setting on the beach uh, 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 one evening in, 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 uh, there in Hawaii, and we're playing touch football. And it led to one of us kind of pushed or made contact with the other that was a little forceful. And so then the other came back, and before you knew it, we were, we were 
you know, scrapping on the beach there as a sunset. It was a very beautiful sight uh, as we were, as, as we were uh, uh, letting out our frustrations with one another from a, a summer of living too close together and all of that. You get a sense that that's a little what's going on here. Jesus isn't physically fighting these Pharisees and scribes, but, but they are asking him questions, and there's things about him that bother them. And so we're getting to the point where Jesus is going to say, let's just bring it out to the surface. And what he's bringing out to the surface here in bringing this to the fore is he's addressing the hypocrisy of their hearts. And by God's grace, he's addressing the hypocrisy that we are prone to and that we need a cure for. You see this. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So they might find a reason to accuse him. So remember, they've been asking questions, they've been watching, and now they, he brings a man with a withered hand in. And it says, verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And so Jesus has everybody here waiting on their toes. Is he going to heal the man and violate the Sabbath, or is he going to, going to fall in line with how things, they believe things ought to be done? It's like we've reached a crescendo of understanding Jesus' relationship to the Sabbath, and in a way understanding his relationship to the Pharisees and scribes. And look at verse 10. And after looking around at them all, after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus shows finally and completely that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and more appropriately, that he is breaking the notions that they would have for him or the ways in which they want him to fall in line with their expectations. And brothers and sisters, here is what we need to understand. We in our hearts are always prone to setting expectations for Jesus and what we want from him. Setting demands for Jesus and how he has a right or doesn't have a right to, to, to address and to correct and to change us. You see, when I am the captain of my own soul, Jesus serves to equip me to help me reach my destination. But when he makes himself the captain and tells me to take a back seat, then the issue begins to rise if I won't fully submit under him. And what Jesus is showing us here, you know, when you think about somebody being a hypocrite, you think of the, 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 the imagery of somebody who, who says one thing, but then does another. They stand up and tell everyone else what to do, but then they do something else. But what Jesus is revealing for us here is that the root of hypocrisy is not necessarily us getting our actions wrong in line with what, who we say Jesus is, but what our actions actually reveal is what we really believe about Jesus. You catch that? And so he's saying, he's approaching, he's confronting these who do not understand him because he doesn't fit into the boxes that they have for him. And so the call for us is to recognize the ways in which not we, we don't need to get Jesus to fit more in line with our desires for him, 
but to ask humbly the question, will I submit under the authority of Jesus over me? Because what he does is he reveals himself, at, or he reveals our hypocrisy. But then in the wonder of the gospel, do you see verse 11? They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They start to plan in this moment how they are going to silence him. You see, Jesus talked about in verse 35, back in chapter 5, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. You have a couple of ways that this foreshadows Jesus being taken away. The fury of the Pharisees leading to the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus. But the wonder of the gospel, understand this, the wonder of the gospel is that in the hypocritical belief that they were serving God that led the Pharisees and scribes actually to order and bring about and commission the crucifixion of Jesus, He actually provides the cure for our hypocrisy in His death. Because it is in the death of Jesus that con constrained hearts can find that they can be captivated by the wonder of the suffering servant who died and shed his blood in their place. It is in the death of Jesus that the law of God and its demands for sacrifice, its demands for perfect obedience, its demands for righteousness without which no one will see God, the law of God is satisfied not in the Pharisees' vain sense seeking righteousness, but in the life and death of the crucified King. And it is in the death of Christ where he meets your hypocrisy and my hypocrisy face to face and says, you want to know me and you want to serve me rightly? Look to me as the one who offers to free you from your false notions of me, from your fabricated ideas of who I am and what Christianity is, and come to me and live. That is what this Jesus does. So the question before us, will we manufacture, will we fabricate Jesuses of our own making that perhaps make our lives better fit in line with what we want Him to be? Or will we fall in line with the Son of Man who is Lord over the Sabbath and is Lord over you and I and find that in Him, we can be captivated, we can be freed, and we can find rest.